This is the Bill Kelly Show podcast. Busy day at City Hall yesterday. Hamilton City Council have said that they are not willing to pay for any renovations for First Ontario Centre. I don't think that's a surprise to anybody. However, they did say that they are willing to consider private sector redevelopment pitches. Is that even realistic? Are we just spinning our wheels here and going down the same road that we did with uh, the stadium, with a number of other initiatives? There are people out there with money. Really? Are there? John Best has been watching this, actually covering the story for about the last 30 years. He is the publisher of the Bay Observer. He joins us here on the Bill Kelly Show on CHML. Good morning, John. How are you doing today? Doing well, Bill. Thank you. I, I, I can't help but admit, you know, when I heard this about, yeah, let's let's uh, see if we can get some private sector. We're going to develop an arena precinct downtown. Uh, we've been down this road before, haven't we? Yeah, uh, we certainly have. Uh you know, and and I I'm not sure Arena Precinct uh, even makes sense because uh, you know we, as we went through with the stadium debate, as as was pointed out numerous times, um, you've got in the case of the stadium, you got a building that's that's really full nine times a year, ten or eleven if you're lucky, if the team's good, and then maybe a few special events. But even with hockey, um, you know, you're looking at at forty and. Up maybe up to 50 occasions a year, and I'm not sure how many big concerts we get, but I think 10 would likely be about the number. So you're still looking at a building that is empty, uh, you know. Most of the time. Or, yeah, most of the time. And it's pretty hard to build any kind of an activity precinct around a darkened building. Uh, so I think the whole concept of... Uh, thinking of sports stadia or arenas as some kind of uh, catalyst for anything is, you know, it's a, I think it's kind of been there and done that. 30 years ago, uh, when we were having the discussion about the arena and, and, and building the arena in the first place, and I know it was a different time, but there were a few people that looked rather quizzically at the council decision at that time to actually put it over on Bay Street because there wasn't a whole lot going on on Bay Street back in those days. Uh, everybody thought it was going to be downtown, maybe off John Street, something like this. But the, they said, no, 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 no. This is going to be a catalyst for economic development in this area. You're going to see restaurants and hotels built and all sorts of other things are going to happen as a result of this arena. Well, here we are 30 years later. Not much has happened. I mean, the pizza joint around the corner is still there. Uh, I think the Harvey's is closed now. It may still be there. I don't know. But there's not much happening. I mean, aside from the federal building, which really had nothing at all to do with the arena. Uh, so are, are we going to go down this road and fall for this idea, too, that, that, that arenas, whether they be football stadiums or hockey arenas, are a catalyst for economic development? I just don't see the argument for it. No, I, I don't. I, I mean, I think when you're talking about redevelopment, I, I think you know, one of the options that has to be on the table is total redevelopment, which means basically using the footprint and no longer having an arena there. Uh, you know, uh, the Joe Lewis Arena in Detroit is closing. It's only six years older than uh, Cops Coliseum or the First Ontario Centre. And I think we have to recognize that, that one of the options may be that there is no arena on that corner and that there's a better use for the property that, that could indeed involve, uh, you know, some, some kind of economic stimulus, uh, you know, condos with retail. I mean, there's already significant retail there, and we're always being told that we need more people living downtown to make that retail uh, viable and, and more robust. So, you know, I, I think when we're looking at options, we have to look at all the options, and since we don't seem to have a plan for making the building better, uh, one of the options may be that there is no building there. 
And I feel badly, obviously, for, for Michael Andlar and the Bulldogs, but let's set that aside for just a couple of seconds. Because to make this thing work, to make any arena situation work, as you mentioned, you've got to have dates where there are going to be people in there. Uh, and that means like a professional sports team that's going to have 40 to 50 dates uh, and draw massive crowds. But even then, even then, uh, and that's not going to happen, by the way, anytime soon. But here, let's look at the price tag here, John. I mean, you know, according to this this report that the city council had finally received the details on yesterday, the bargain basement price to do any renovations here is $68 million. That gives us a, a retrofit, okay? Uh, if you want to have the whole thing done and fixed up and brought up to what they call standards of, of 2017, $252 million. And, and they say, well, we don't have the money, but we're going to try to find the private sector. Who in their right mind, who has that kind of money, is going to invest in an arena that's not even owned by them? It's going to be owned by the city that's only going to have, like you say, how many dates a year? The rest of the time it's dark. That's that. These guys got rich. That might be stupid. And I don't think that there's anybody out there who's going to make that kind of investment here. My guess is that if somebody came along with $250 million to fix up that arena, uh, the city would be uh, very tempted to sell it to them for a buck. That's huge money, and money that we'd never be able to raise at the at the private level. I, I you know, and then the problem is, uh, I mean, things have changed so radically. And and I, I wrote an editorial about this. That I I don't really criticize the idea for building the arena in the first place. It was a it was a time when it looked like there was a very good opportunity for an NHL franchise in Hamilton because Harold Ballard uh, owned the Ticats. He had made some proposals that, that were doable. Uh, one of them was uh, that he would uh, certainly waive his territorial rights and, and presumably exercise whatever influence he had with the league uh, if, if something could be done about the uh, Iverwind Stadium, either replace it or bring it up to a better standard. So there was there was a not you know it wasn't a wild if they build it they will come there there was actually some serious conversations going on uh and and of course the price uh, the the arena was built for about 40 million dollars joe lewis i was just reading about joe lewis which is is going to go down this summer it cost a little i think 54 million uh that that's what a, that's what state of the art arenas were being built for and even if you factor in inflation uh, over the years, uh, what we paid uh, probably would work out to about eighty or ninety million to get a brand new arena, and here we're talking about you know uh, two hundred and fifty million just to retrofit it. So you know it wasn't a goofy idea at the time, but no, I agree. Unfortunately, thirty years have gone by. The arena is beyond being described as tired, and and you know not having not even having the money to fix elevators and escalators. I, I think you really do have to look at at, a, at a, an option that involves, uh, you know, it's time to say goodbye to the arena. And and you, to your point about the, you know back what happened thirty odd years ago too. I mean, I, and I know I'm telling stories out of school here because I think a lot of folks around town know uh, this story. But former J- Mayor Jack McDonald, who was the mayor of the city at that time, uh, told me that he, for all intents and purposes, has had a deal in principle with Harold Ballard, and you know that if we fix up the stadium for his Tiger Cats. That uh, he'll clear the way. I mean, back in those days, Ballard had a lot of influence over the NHL Board of Governors, and it wasn't just a matter of territorial rights. Uh, so I'm not going to say it was a done deal, but you're right; it was a lot closer than many people probably think. 
problem was Jack lost the election uh, before anything could actually happen, and uh, I guess everything kind of went up in smoke as a result of that. But but and and there were lots of cities back in those days, if you remember, John, that were building arenas and stadiums for this idea that if we build it, they will come. And in some cases, that happened. You know, there's some relocation of some NFL franchises, Major League Baseball franchises, and there was a lot of changeable hockey franchises in those days as well. They built that place out in New Jersey, and they, they grabbed their team from Kansas City to move back over there to, to the Tri-States area. So, I mean, these, these things were happening, and, and Hamilton was very much in play now. We're not anymore, and we have to have, I think, a, a, a realistic look at this and just say we're not one of those players at this stage in, in the NHL's eyes or anybody else's for that matter as far as professional leagues are concerned. Yeah, it's come down to we. I think we got a glimpse of it, but if you're if you're talking about uh, major league sports now, the, the 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 number one thing you need is a billionaire, uh, a multi-billionaire, uh, because none of it makes sense economically anymore. Uh, you know, if you look at spending, it's it's in the three and four hundred million dollar range now to build a brand new arena. Uh, and if you're going to Bettman with some kind of an NHL expansion proposal or a team transfer, um, you know, you're saying, okay, well, we, we've got a 30-odd-year-old arena that we've kind of fixed up for uh, to get it up to a standard, or some billionaire in, uh, you know, in California that says, hey, we're going to build one right out of the ground, uh, you know, a brand-new, shiny everything, and and also look at these NFL franchises that are bouncing around uh, over in the western part of the United States, you know they're and and they're all being lured by brand new arenas and they're abandoning arenas that are or buildings that in some cases are only fifteen or twenty years old. It it you know it, it's just become so stratospheric now, the the kind of money that's involved to play in the big league uh, sports game that. That you you need somebody who is uh, as as uh, Trump would say huge when it comes to money. Here's the thing: I think we have to understand our place in 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 the new world order. I guess when it comes to things like this, and and I love it. You know, when I saw Garth Brooks last year at Cop, or first on Saturday, yeah, eighteen thousand people there for four, five concerts. It was great. I uh, see Springsteen, you see the Who, you see some of these other great acts. But the rest of the time, the place is dark, and it still costs money to tr- you know to turn on the lights to to make the ice and all these sorts of things. You've got to have, as you say, somebody with deep pockets to do this. Or in absence of that, you have to understand that maybe we don't need a building that that's big you know it's you know what this is this is like a, a, a family, John, who's, you know, the kids have grown up, they finished school, they've moved out, they're, they're, they're empty nesters, they don't need a big house anymore. So they I downsize. They don't want to give up the house, they want something a little bit smaller, they don't want to live in a condo. Well, it's, I, I think that's the decision, and maybe that's the tenure of the conversation we should be having right now. Maybe if you want to start seeking private sector investment, you start saying, look, it, let's, let's build ourselves a nine or 10,000 seat arena uh, on another site, perhaps, and and use this land and and sell this on to a private developer to do some of the stuff that that private developers are doing downtown right now. That could be a win-win for the city. It could be, and I mean, it's now been about five years uh, into the London experiment where they built a, an arena of that you know sort of under ten thousand size, and certainly downtown London has still got its challenges, uh, but uh, there's no question that that building appears to be a success and and because it doesn't have that huge size it's attracting 
uh, a level of entertainment. I, I, I dare say they have more entertainment nights there than we do at, at our arena. Now, isn't coincidental, Core Entertainment that manages our arena, I manages that one, and they're doing fine. Yeah, they are, and in, in, in a more out-of-the-way place uh, uh, for entertainers to get to. Uh, they're doing very well, so I, I think there's something to be to be learned perhaps from the Labatt Center in, in London. Uh, clearly, uh, for junior hockey, uh, you know, the Labatt Center, the London Knights, I think, have the best attendance pretty much year in and year out yeah, over they do. Yeah. any other team. And, there, you know, uh, there, there'd be something pretty nice about sitting in an arena that, you know, that seats, say, 8,000 for hockey, uh, you know, uh, with the population base that we have here, I, I think you could get people interested in something like that. Well, it's going to have to be a change of attitude here. And, and instead of, you know, trying to find ways to work with an existing building that clearly is way past its best before date, if they really want to do something and they want to maintain uh, some sort of a facility here that can still have concerts and still house, for instance, a junior A hockey team uh, and some other functions can be there, then they've, they've, they've simply got to have a more realistic look at this. I mean, when this opened 30 years ago, it was the Victor K. Cops Arena and Trade Center. We don't do RV shows there anymore. I mean, you know, the times have changed and we have to understand that. And we, I think we got to get our heads out of the cloud about these precinct things that's going to have this mass development. I know somebody mentioned uh, at the meeting the other day about, well, look at what the, uh, Ottawa did with uh, the Lansdowne Park lands. You know, they built a new stadium there. I talked to the owners of that facility. I met them a few years ago as they were developing that. You know, and, and the, the, the reality, the stadium was almost a, a throw-in because that's a massive parcel of land that's all been redeveloped with commercial and condos and that was the that was the the mother load for the people that were developing this sort of thing that the stadium was almost a lost leader for them yeah yeah we'll build a stadium for you too just let us do this on the rest of the land we don't have that availability in downtown hamilton right now no but what we do have is a a, a pretty exciting um, development taking place uh, at the bottom of bay street uh, with uh, harbor redevelopment yep. you can start to see a north south axis uh, forming along there of development and and so maybe the, the the you know when you look at the the arena site and the high school across the street and sort of put that all together there's there's some kind of uh, synergy there that that makes sense and it's maybe uh, more condos um, we don't know I don't know how many condos the city can absorb before we reach some kind of a saturation point but I, you know, right now what we have is a publicly owned arena and an underutilized high school, uh, neither of which are paying taxes. Um, you know, so two institutional buildings as opposed to some kind of commercial or even residential development, uh, it's got to be, you know, at the end of the day, it's got to be a better thing for the bottom line for the city of Hamilton. You'd think so. Well, they have to change the conversation to do this. John, thanks as always for the time. It's great to have you on the show today. My pleasure, Bill. John Best, of course, publisher of the Bay Observer. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. We talked about the marathon session the other day at City Council to do with uh, the light rail transit uh, issue, and, of course, both pro and con, and uh, it's become rather contentious. They actually didn't uh, vote uh, about the environmental assessment. They decided to kick that down the can until about the, the 19th of this month when they have another meeting. And the phone surveys going on, which we've talked about before, and you know that's obviously going to be done, and they'll have the results in time for that meeting. But a number of delegations uh, spoke to the uh, to the LRT subcommittee at that meeting. One of them is Attilio Di Fiore, who's a, 
Uh, from Hamilton, as a matter of fact, he's the president and CEO of Atwill Medical Solutions Incorporated with offices in Utah and Hamilton. And uh, he joins us here on the Bill Kelly Show to uh, talk about uh, not just what he said, of course, at the meeting the other day, but about his perspective on this, too. Th- first of all, thanks for coming in. This is not a real stretch for you because uh, you're, you're a Hamilton guy and uh, you, you yes, s- sir. still spend a lot of time here. I do, yeah. My family still lives up here in Hamilton, so I come you, up quite a bit. You grew up just around the corner here. I did on Charlton Street between Locke and Dundurn. All right, yeah. and uh, and still still with the residents here, and your wife's from this area, so the, mm. the, the, you've got some roots here. Okay, how does a nice guy like you end up in Salt Lake City? <laughs> well, I uh, <laughs> I worked for a company, a medical company, up in near Mississauga, in Mississauga actually, and uh, and um, uh, that company was bought by another company in Salt Lake City. It was a is a is a major medical company that's out of New Jersey, but they had a division in Salt Lake City, and uh, they asked me to move to Salt Lake once they bought the company. This was back in ninety seven, ninety eight, in that area. And uh, and obviously the company's done well, but you've branched out. I mean, you're doing something else now. But that's you, correct, same yeah. same genre, same area. That's correct. Yeah, I left that company about six years ago and started another company with a partner, and he actually is also from Hamilton, uh, which was surprising because I didn't know that when I met him. I was working in Salt Lake at the time. And so um, uh, we uh, formed a company, this Atwell Medical, and uh, designed some products. We, we licensed the technologies out to some larger companies in the U.S., and uh, and now we're looking to buy a company in Wisconsin and uh, expand our OEM manufacturing area, that kind of thing. So, Sidebar issue before we start talking about the LAT thing. Uh, yeah. You were mentioning that when the company was purchased and you went down to Salt Lake, so there wasn't a whole lot of that sort of stuff going on around here. Things have changed here too, haven't they? Hamilton's it, really started to become a hub. Yeah, it has. It has. It's wonderful. It's great, actually. One of our offices is here at MIP, uh, and just uh, across the road here. Yeah, right. And and the uh, and and our interaction with the university has been fantastic. Um, I'm glad they've been um, pushing the technologies from the university out to some of the manufacturers and some of the companies. And I'm noticing there's a lot of other companies we can call now. It used to be that you, you had to always go to the states to get what you needed from you know different vendors and manufacturers, but now there seems to be quite a bit up here in Ontario as well. So when you moved down there, I tell you, uh, to Salt Lake City some time ago, uh, you were there when this their discussion about light rail transit was taking place. Correct, yes. It wasn't already there. No, that's correct, yeah. All right, talk to me about what happened in that <clears throat> process. I mean, because you were kind of an observer there. You're relatively yeah. new to the area, yeah. and, and this discussion was going on. Yeah, so, you know, we, in 97, 98, you know, Salt Lake City was, um, you know, about population, like the, the city itself is about 250,000. But it's it, it has the same kind of situation like we have out here where there's it runs into other cities, like Hamilton runs into Burlington and that kind of thing. And so um, uh, the population started to, to grow. The Olympics were coming in 2002. Yeah, you, you already knew that was happening. Yeah, that was happening. And uh, and the government had, the federal government had given grants to the state to you know, with the highways and to help with the infrastructure, and so one of the one of the plans was let's put in a light rail system, a transit system, so that we can move people around, not just you know now for the Olympic Games because the venues were pretty far apart, but also because you know to in- enhance the movement of people from city to city, and that that became kind of the discussion: how do we want to run this this trail, this rail system? Where are we going to put it? Um, it turns out that. You know, Salt Lake is 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 has some good uh, adapted areas for running these kind of these kind of systems. Well, one thing is that they have a rail system that runs north south in the valley. If you don't know Salt Lake in terms of the way it's laid out, it really is between two mountain ranges, so it runs mostly north south. There's some east west portions. The, the airport's west of the city. The university's east of the city. 
um, and then um, most of the most of the city expands southward into the, in the valley. So, so you're you know even though it's called Salt Lake City and everybody thinks the whole thing is the city, it's not. There's Salt Lake, North Salt Lake, Murray, you know, Riverton, Draper. These these just we have here, just like we have here. And so what they did is they they said, okay, well let's figure out the best way to run a track that impe- that that has the least impact on existing you know movement of traffic. And and there were there's three main highways, uh, I-15 which is the one that the corridor that runs from state to state. There's I215 which is a loop that runs internally in the state. And then there's a street called State Street which is a massive street basically that runs the whole state again, but it's uh but you know eight lanes, four lanes each direction. And so they said, "Okay, well let's figure out a way to run this train so that we don't impede these these the system of traffic internally in the city." And they had a freight line that ran north south in the valley and it and it ran through the cities. So they they built a track along that freight line. And uh, and then they put stops in each city for that track, and uh, you know obviously the only impedance you have is when you have to cross the rail, but you had to cross the rail anyway because there's there was a track there already. Sure. Then they built like a, they tied that into the the bus system, so they had uh, the buses would go to those areas, you know. So they became hubs. The, exactly, those were hubs, and each city had a couple of stops, and you could basically get on this thing for two or three bucks from one side of the valley to the other. And that covered probably about 25 miles of linear track from one side to the to the next. And and the existing transit system basically fed the, the transit correct. line, the, the, the That's train correct. line. Yeah, and it became very efficient. Now, here's the odd thing is we moved there in 97, 98, and we loved the bus system in Hamilton. I mean, we could get anywhere, right? Uh, they, they just started using the B line, I think, at that time or just before that to run to the university. Yeah. It was great. And uh, and when my wife and I both moved out there, one thing we noticed was, wow, the bus system sucks out here. It's terrible, right? <laughs> it's like it's like they just didn't have a good bus system. Yeah. And uh, so you really couldn't you really couldn't get anywhere on a bus in a relatively short period of time there. But when they, the the track fixed that, because the buses now became kind of a, like you said a feeder to that track system, and the track system integrated perfectly in that in that way. And of course, so you're almost encouraged of the way they've designed their system, as you explained it, though, Attilio. You're almost encouraged to take the LRT because the buses are taking you right there anyway. Exactly. Yeah. So I'm going to get to that yeah. point, but I still want to go further south or north. Yep. I'm going to hop on the train. Yep. And they they just they stuck they kept adding to the, the system. So they had an initial system that ran basically north south in the valley, so you could get to these venues, you know. And then they tied a couple other things east west. But then they started building longer rails left and you know like so they go east west and they they call them a different color lines a green line blue line a red line and yeah, major uh, cities do that boston's yeah. got a system like that new york right. has a system like that it's it's yeah. all color-coded yeah yeah exactly and so they and so you get to downtown and once you're downtown you can hop the different line too so i mean you know eventually you're on a dedicated line if you go further enough south or further further in, uh, enough f- far enough east or west you're on a green line or a blue line if you go fur- far enough south you're on, a, you're on a red line but as you come north or come to the center you you can hop on different lines you know there's some transfer points for that to put this in perspective, because I don't want people to get the impression that, well, yeah, you moved out back there 30 years ago, and, and now you're coming back and saying this is how we should do it. You're back and forth all the time. So you've been able That's to... That's correct. You're, being, you're, you're comparing yeah. what's been going on here with yeah. what happened in Salt Lake City. Right. Uh, you've been following this discussion and debate, uh, <laughs> have, of course, yes. every time you come back here, because yes. you still... Well, you live in the East End now, yeah. uh, as opposed to over by uh, by Lock Street. But So you're familiar with what's going on. And I'm, I'm getting the sense from, from your comments, and I, I read your uh, presentation to the council as well. You're not, you're not against LRT. You, no, you you've got a problem with the way this is being done and being designed. Correct. Yeah, yeah. There's there's I, I mean you know to to take take kind of a, a ten thousand foot view 
uh, for a moment. I, you know, when I first heard that we're going to put an LRT in, so I was really excited by it. And I thought, wow, it was so cool and so great in Salt Lake City. It, it helped so much. Um, you know, I, and then we've got such a great infrastructure for the bus system here. It's going to be amazing. You know, is what first thing came to mind. Then I started seeing the plan, and I went, "Well, I don't understand how this is going to work. Like, how do you how do you do this? What's the point of this system?" Like, so I started kind of asking questions. You know, and 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 asking like questions like, "What what's the objective?" Like, I know we have funding from this from the government. From the federal government to, to, to do well, this. Well, the province so the far. province so far. And I know we have funding for that. And and so we have to use this money for infrastructure. I mean, I haven't read the the actual, uh, you know, the, the the arrangement and the funding. So, you know, obviously it has to be used for infrastructure and for an LRT system is what my understanding is. So, so what's the point of the LRT system? Is it to increase the economy of the general city? Is it to, uh, you know, tie particular hubs together? I mean, I wasn't really sure where it was going. I saw the plan for it and went, okay, so Queenston Loop to McMahon. And I think that's still the same plan. Yeah, yeah. And and I looked at it and went, I'm not sure exactly what that does for anybody. There are already bus systems that run that that route. Um, you know, what are they tying together? What's the point? I mean, are we running it to Mount Hope Airport to increase the size of the airport and get more traffic flow into the airport? Or, you know, what? how are we increasing the economy of the city? And the only thing I could come up with was you'd want to increase the tax base. Um, and I thought, okay, so we're going to try to increase the tax base with this, with this LRT system because that's how you would increase the economy of the city. Um, and, and then I, then I'm, I'm looking at, again, at this, this track and I'm saying, well, how do you increase the tax base? You're not bringing anybody into the city to work from, from faraway places, which is what really the LRT system did in Salt Lake City. You, you can now live in Riverton, which Riverton is a crappy drive to downtown Salt Lake. You can live in Riverton, you know, build a nice house, you know, it's not too expensive and you can get to downtown Salt Lake pretty easily by hopping on this train. And I'm thinking, well, there's how's how do I compare that to Hamilton? Well, in Hamilton, and and we previously discussed like house prices, how they're moving yeah, up oh here. yeah, yeah. Well, they're they're moving up because people are moving to Hamilton because they can't afford to live in Toronto or Oakville, or even Mississauga, I guess in that in that, in that, in that you know respect. So how do you how do you increase traffic flow to Hamilton? And I thought, well, the best way to do that and increase the tax base here is to have people come live in Hamilton, like a and, and they can work in Toronto or work in Mississauga where they have to go. So why not set up a train that goes from Hamilton to a place where people want to go work, and then that gives them a place to come and live and be happy and live here, and you increase your tax base and increase the economy because then you just put more taxes into the system. So that to me was made more sense, but. Uh, again, I don't know the detail of the plan that came from the government that says you, this is how you have to implement it. As, much, as far as I know, Hamilton has the right to implement the system how they want. Well, that's what I thought, except that the, the modifications that have been made to it over the last uh, couple of years uh, have actually come from someplace else. It wasn't from city staff or city council, so I don't know what's going on with that. Yeah. And, and to your point, uh, the, you know, the GO system that runs between cities <clears throat> mm-hmm. uh, has also promised all-day GO service. And, of course, they're going to build another station in the East End up by uh, Highway 20. Mm-hmm. So technically, I guess in, in some point of the future, they're going to have that service that's supposed to go at, at some point from Niagara Falls all the way across to Toronto. That's going to be yeah. great. And, of course, Hamilton can benefit from that. But as you look at the plan for LRT, yeah, uh, yeah like I understand your, 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 your desire to have something stronger between cities, and I agree. I think we need to do that. Uh, when you uh, is, is In your mind, is this LRT plan too big? Is, are they trying to bite off too much at once? 
Well, you mentioned you started off slowly in Salt Lake City. You didn't build the whole thing. You built just through the downtown core initially. That's how Calgary did theirs back in right. the 1980s. It really just ran through downtown. Yeah, yeah, that's what they did. I mean, they 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 implemented this, the strategy as okay, we have the funding to for the Olympic Games, so we need to tie these venues together. So they ran the train so that you could get to these venues, basically. But the plan was in the future to expand the train. They knew what they were going to do with it in the future, right? Yeah. And, uh, and the expansion was fantastic. And they they literally, I mean, it tied together like when they ran. And they built the first tracks. They continued the build. Like, they never really stopped. It kind of, like, kept going. So they built the tracks, got it ready for the Olympics. The Olympics came. Everybody had a good time. And they kept building. So the tracks kept expanding as they did. And they're still expanding it. They're still running it in areas where there's population growth, right? Because that's the idea is that you, you want to run the train to a place where there's a growth of population so that you can move that population from where they're living to where they're going to want to go work. Right or shop or play or, or whatever. Shop, correct. Yeah. Now, one of the big differences here in the wild card is is down in in Utah. In as a matter of fact, in most states, uh, there's consistent state and, and federal funding for an awful sure. lot of these projects. We yeah. don't have that here in Canada yet. Right. Uh, although you know this is one time funding for this one project, and and so there's the concern we've got at this stage is well, who's going to pay the operating cost? What about you know the cost going forward? And they don't have any of the answers, and and that right. I think is causing an awful lot of the frustration that we feel here. Well, yeah, I think I think you've got examples of it though, like like locally, like uh, like building bridges and and doing other things here uh, locally that you've seen. You know, you can learn from those things. Like we've you know if we've had cost overruns in some of these things or how we do our bidding and those kind of things. I mean, we we learn from those mistakes. If we've, we 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 budgeted fifty million for a bridge and we spent ninety million on it, why did that happen? You know, and so. The, the idea is to learn from those things and, and, you know, lay out your next strategy for the next build so you don't overrun on your costs. I mean, we, in the medical business, you're, you're everything's on a GP. You got to well, make sure you're a business you know, guy. Going. This is, this is, and that's an interesting perspective though, Attilio. I mean, you have to watch your bottom line. Exactly. Yeah. All right. Yeah. I mean, if, you know, if, if there are cost overruns in your business, uh, you, you know, you're out of business before right. too long. <laughs> yeah. I, and I don't, I know you don't build LRT lines. That's not what you do. But, <laughs> no. but on the other hand, uh, from a business perspective, you take that that observation and say, "There's a billion dollars," and you look at this plan. You don't think we're getting our money's worth out of it? No, that, no, no. I, I don't think so. I mean, I, I get, if you're if you're going to spend a billion dollars and your objective is to increase the economy of the city, there's you need to look at the structure of what you're building and decide is this really the best way to build the economy of the city the way we're running the system, and and you know uh, the street like King Street's really not designed to be able to handle right now. It's already down to what three lanes as it is, and if you remember. And I, you know, when I was up here, when they had that dedicated bus line that ran down King Street, I mean, that was a disaster. And that bus line was the dedicated bus uh, lane was only what a lane and a half, maybe a lane wide. Yeah. And it just it just killed traffic on King Street. So I can't imagine if you're going to take out almost two lanes of traffic on King Street with this train. Well, there'll be one lane each way. That, yeah, at the end of the day, on yeah, King it's a Street. disaster. I'm now kidding. you said that one of the priorities in Salt Lake City when they installed theirs was was to minimize the impact it was going to have on vehicular traffic. Correct. With, with I got about a minute left here. With that in mind, yeah, this is your town. This is your hometown. Where would you put LRT? If 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 we just gave you a blank slate and said, Atilio, let's start all over again, what would you do? Well, you know, I know you've been talking. You said the Go Train was you know going to be running to try. They've been talking about doing that for. 25 years, right? <laughs> They're going to have a GO train. So I personally, I would run an express line right to Toronto, right to Union Station. I would run an express nonstop for Hamiltonians to get to Toronto. If you wanted to put a single stop somewhere in between, you could, I guess. But for the most part, if, if Hamilton's paying for the rail, they sh- it should service Hamilton. And I would run a direct line right to, right to Union Station and back and like do it all day long. 
uh, a different perspective on what's going on. And we'll see how Hamilton City Council handles this the, uh, the days and weeks ahead. Thanks so much for coming in. It's great oh, to no have problem. you with us today. Thank you. Thanks, Bill. Atelio Di Fiore, of course, uh, who is uh, looking for a different way to spend that billion dollars uh, to try to enhance our transit system here in Hamilton. And we try to try to give you as many different perspectives as we can on this project as uh, we go forward and ultimately, hopefully, get to a point where City Council is going to make a decision on it. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. Well, it's been an active day uh, for the uh, week, really, I guess not just day, but a week for the uh, the mayor's anti-poverty uh, initiatives. Uh, City Council uh, batted that back and forth, and there's been a, a couple of days of uh, very intense discussion about how to deal with poverty here in this community. As a matter of fact, Tom Cooper who is the director of the Hamilton Roundtable for Poverty Reduction, is involved in one of those seminars right now about basic income. But we've yanked him out of that room to talk to us about what happened at City Council yesterday. And he joins us here on the Bill Kelly Show. Tom, thanks so much for the time. I know it's a busy day for you. It's uh, it's incredibly busy, Bill, but uh, thrilled to be on and, and very happy about yesterday's uh, decision at City Council to invest in affordable housing. I, I want to talk, by the way, about what you're doing right now about the basic income. Let's do that in a couple of minutes, but let's uh, let's go back then to yesterday uh, and and uh, the council decision and this discussion. I know you were uh, watching, and I know that you've you've already commented that you feel that they've made the right decision here. But there were some variations on what the the mayor had initially uh, talked about doing, and, and and council seemed to want to take this in a bit of a different direction. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I, I, I agree with that assessment, Bill. Uh, we had a number of delegates uh, come to council chambers yesterday. We practically filled, uh, filled the room. Uh, many of the people who were there, many people with direct lived experience of poverty, uh, appealed to councillors to, to also remember about the important supports that people need to stay in housing and to prevent homelessness. So, uh, well, I think... You know, again, this $50 million investment is, is absolutely critical and, and it's historic in every way. Uh, the, the fact remains that we also need uh, to ensure we have the resources in place to ensure people can stay in that housing if they need to. The, um, the challenge is that uh, we know it's far more cost effective to keep somebody in affordable housing than to deal with homelessness once it becomes a reality. And uh, it, it's it's more efficient, certainly for the individual uh, who doesn't have their life uprooted, but it's also uh, more cost effective for the city because uh, when we look at the numbers, it actually costs about various levels of government uh, and taxpayers really about two thousand dollars a month to keep one person in a homeless shelter for one month. Uh, whereas if we provided uh, supportive housing, it, it's far more uh, cost effective, lower cost than that. Um, so I think we, we need a balanced approach, but certainly I am glad that city councils uh, move forward with this uh, $50 million uh, to ensure that uh, social housing is repaired and, and maybe we can get some new builds out of it as well. We should mention, by the way, for those that may not be familiar with the uh, the protocol and how this is all going to roll out, uh, this is not going to have an impact on the tax base. Uh, the $50 million is from hydro dividends. Uh, that uh, would have gone to the future fund, and, and the mayor is essentially asking council to dedicate that money to poverty reduction. Exactly, and uh, the mayor called me into his office probably about uh, 15 months ago uh, with this idea, and it, it was bold at that time, and it remains bold. So I really have to take my hat off to Mayor Eisenberger for his leadership in this. Uh, again, uh, we are meeting here in Hamilton along with uh, 350 other uh, anti-poverty advocates, municipal representatives from across 
the country. Uh, I was just talking uh, with a member of the Legislative Assembly of the Northwest Territories, and uh, they are all, to a person, thrilled with this uh, investment that Hamilton City Council has made. Uh, and again, you're right, it doesn't come uh, directly from the tax base. Uh, the future fund was available uh, for this historic investment, and you know it was money that was uh, used to help build the stadium. And in 2012, certainly Council saw the, the uh, uh, saw the benefit of building uh, building a stadium for the Pan Am Games. But I, I'm um, far happier that in 2017 they've chosen instead to invest in people uh, by by this 50 million dollar uh, uh, plan for affordable housing. Tom, in the mayor's initial presentation, uh, he had talked about setting aside about $30 million for a, a menu of poverty-fighting measures. Uh, the council decided to allocate everything for housing instead. Are, are those measures, and I know you're familiar with some of them, are they off the table now? Uh, that is a good question, Bill. Uh, the, the final motion was a little bit ambiguous. Uh, it, it seems that council would prefer the money to go into infrastructure, so the actual repair and building of housing, and, and that, of course, is, is critically important. Um, but we, I, I think we definitely still need to have conversations about what kind of supports we need in the community to keep people housed. I was really glad um, that the, uh, the Indigenous poverty uh, and housing supports uh, remain there, even if they are going to build. Um, we have to recognize that uh, our Indigenous population here in, in Hamilton, across the country really, uh, often experience the deepest poverty out of any group. And, uh, and so we need specific uh, strategies in order to, uh, to, to support them. And uh, only they know, I, I believe, what, uh, what is most appropriate in their own community. And, and they'll be helping to lead, uh, lead that in those infrastructure builds, I think, down the road. Some of those support mechanisms that, uh, that you've talked about, and uh, with the mayor, obviously, uh, I, I get the impression the counselor, counselors rather seem to think that was rather vague. And that, was was there a failure there in being more specific about how effective some of those programs could be, or, or even what those pro programs might have been? No, I, I think we were pretty specific. So I was on the planning team that uh, that presented that list of options to council. Um, we uh, we had proposed at the time uh, that there would be ten million going into social housing repairs uh, over a three year period. Uh, some of the other funding would uh, have gone to uh, something called a portable housing allowance. So right now we know many people um, are, are having tremendous difficulties affording their rent and, and they're at imminent risk of homelessness. A portable housing allowance would be maybe a $200 extra a month that would be provided uh, to families uh, in those precarious housing situations uh, that they could use to help maintain their housing. And they could use that in any rental accommodation across the city so it would be portable um so it wouldn't necessarily be tied to to a specific address but tied to the person so that if uh, a person had a, a change in 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 their own uh individual circumstances they could take a portable housing allowance with them so that was important uh we also proposed having uh supports for housing stability and you may recall bill that uh, back in december uh, there was a report that the city ran out of funding for housing stability. Now, these, this is a special fund uh, that enables uh, the city to provide a little bit of financial assistance to people who are at uh, imminent risk of, of falling into a situation of homelessness. Uh, it's a really critical program, and um, uh, we quite frankly didn't have enough money in the community for it. So that was another proposal. 
there were also some very interesting proposals around uh, homelessness prevention and uh, and early years uh, support. So the Nurse Family Partnership, which is run through public health um, and, and really provides really intensive supports to to young families who, who are living in poverty to ensure that they can get the best start in life. It provides supports to young moms and dads as well as their kids. And, and where it's been uh, where it's been run in other communities right across North America, there's been tremendous uh, outcomes. And really, the the return on investment is is really eight dollars uh, return for every one dollar spent. So that was a good program as well. So I really hope those aren't lost. Uh, but we'll need to, I think, delve into the details of, of the report a little bit more and see uh, see exactly where council wants to go. I, I'm just wondering if this is, has fallen victim to uh, what has happened in the past, not just here in Hamilton, but with a lot of other uh, city councillors, or for that matter, any level of government, who decide that they're going to allocate the lion's share of the money to uh, to to something solid they can put their hands on and, and, and actually touch and say, this is what we built. Uh, the ideas of helping some of those people that are in dire circumstances may seem a little abstract to some of them. Yeah, and I, I'm a little bit worried about that as well, Bill, um, because, I, again, I think we do need a balanced approach. Certainly we need uh, the social housing infrastructure. There is a huge waiting list, 6,000 families on the waiting list right now in Hamilton alone. Um, but we also need those supports as well. And, and you're right, those things aren't as concrete. Um, uh, supporting, supporting families to maintain housing and prevent homelessness isn't something you can necessarily have a photo op around. Uh, but they are critically important in, in, in our community. So, um, you know, we'll, we'll continue those conversations and continue pushing to ensure that families have the supports they need. Now there's some discussion. Having said that, that you know they're going to put all fifty million dollars in, into this uh, side of the program, uh, and now I'm hearing from some sources that may not be enough to even fix up the existing stock, let alone try to add to it. Yeah, we um, we had hoped uh, that the initial investment uh, would uh, would be able to repair about two hundred units in in Hamilton over the next three years and and get those units available so families can move back in. Uh, I, th- I think that's great. Um, I think we have to remember as well that the city, $50 million is, is a huge amount of money, but in, in, in the grand scheme of things, in terms of the need for housing, it, it's really only a drop in the bucket. Uh, we've gone more than 20 years now without a national affordable housing strategy. There's hardly been any new rental accommodations built in this city uh, over the last couple of decades. And, and quite frankly, the federal government has been an absentee landlord on the issue until very recently. So it's great. The, uh, the new federal government in its most recent budget has committed $11 billion over the next decade to, uh, to affordable housing. Unfortunately, a lot of that money isn't going to roll out for, uh, for five years. Uh, we need it now. So I think we need to put even greater pressure on both the federal government and the provincial government and the provincial budgets coming up soon. Uh, to ensure that there are concrete uh, financial supports for communities so we can get uh, those uh, social housing units repaired and get new ones built as well. If that should happen, let, let's assume that the feds come to the table. Uh, is there is there going to be some flexibility built into this policy, Tom, that if all of a sudden they see an influx of federal money to t- maybe take up some of the slack here, that they can rededicate some of that $50 million over the next 10 years to some of these other programs? 
That would be my hope, Bill, and I, I think that would be a wise move. Um, again, the uh, the federal government uh, and the provincial government do have uh, far more resources than the municipal government does, and where we're looking to make the most bang for the buck, I honestly think it is in those support services that the municipality can, uh, can provide to uh, its own community members who it knows best of all. I think when it comes to the, the big infrastructure spending, that's where the federal and provincial government can, can play a, a much more significant role. Uh, so, yeah, that would be my hope that as, as we move out and, and see what's in the provincial budget uh, next, uh, next week or the week after, whenever it comes out, uh, that uh, we can have new conversations with city councillors and see about uh, maybe ensuring that those support services are, are taken care of as well. Now, you told us uh, when you were in studio here the, a couple of weeks ago that there, there is no one thing that's going to get us, uh, you know, a leg up on, on this poverty issue and dealing with this. So housing is a key part of that, clearly. But there are another uh, long, long list of, of support services. And you're talking about one of those today with this idea of, of, uh, of, of income and the impact that that's had on people right now, the basic income. Uh, and I know that we're disappointed that City Council didn't follow through when they had an opportunity to do something about that with their part-time staff that work for the city. But, but talk to us about the importance of that element to it as, and, and, and how it fits into this, this larger picture of, of a multifaceted approach to, to anti-poverty. Yeah, it's, it's a very interesting discussion, even amongst uh, anti-poverty advocates, Bill. So right now we have uh, a number of presenters up on the stage. Uh, Senator Art Eggleton, who you'll call former mayor of uh, Toronto, sure, yeah. uh, who's been very active on, on the anti-poverty file. Uh, Armin Yelnitsyn from the Canadian Centre for Policy Alternatives, an economist. Uh, we have our own John Mills, who's a member of our roundtable. And it's being moderated by our good friend Laura Babcock. And so they're having that discussion right now about whether basic income is uh, an effective poverty reduction strategy uh, for the 21st century or whether it's a bit of a political distraction and, and that government should be looking at other things like living wages, like uh, improving social assistance. Um, so even within our anti-poverty, uh, our friendly anti-poverty community, uh, not everybody's of one mind on basic income. The, the challenge for basic income is, is that we know the economy is, is changing and changing rapidly. Automation may mean that many of the jobs we see around today won't exist uh, even a decade from now. And so if those jobs aren't around and new jobs aren't created, people are going to need an income to ensure that they can meet their basic needs. Um, it, with automation, with uh, you know, robotic robots doing some of the uh, jobs for us, uh, companies are still going to need people to buy their products, and, and we still need to keep the economy humming. Um, so basic income has been brought up as, as one way to ensure that uh, everybody has a, a basic level of support. Now, what that support is, uh, it hasn't been defined yet. So does basic income mean $8,000 a year, which would be similar to what somebody on uh, basic social assistance in Ontario would receive, or is basic income 20000 a year, which is uh, just a little bit below the poverty line. Um, how you define it is critically important. Um, and what's included, do we include health benefits? Do we include 
uh, prescription drugs? Do we uh, ensure that there's uh, housing supports as well? So there's lots of different facets to the basic income debate. And I don't think there is going, we're going to land necessarily on, on a solution today, but uh, we're getting that conversation started, which is really interesting. Well, and you've just talked about six or eight different elements to this. Uh, you know, do, do, you, do you gear specifically towards income itself, or do you look at other support services? Uh, for instance, if there were a national drug plan, would that alleviate some of the pressure, not just on, on low-income people, but on everybody for that matter, too? That's got to be part of the dialogue, which is obviously why you have to have levels of government at the table to do this. Absolutely. Absolutely. And it, uh, the basic income uh, pilot, which has been proposed by the Ontario government, uh, is supposed to uh, be announced in the next little while, actually. Um, so we may see the uh, provincial government uh, doing some tests with basic income. Uh, we're not sure exactly what it's going to look like, whether it's going to uh, be in a specific community or a couple of different communities in Ontario or whether it will be a group of people across the province who will be able to, to benefit. So we're looking, we're looking forward to hearing that. That uh, announcement we expect will be imminent, and uh, it should, uh, should provide a little bit uh, more information on, on how we move forward on this issue. What about the other side of the economic coin, though? Because there are some that that have concerns about basic income, Tom, that say, look, all that's going to do is raise everybody's cost of living. Uh, employers are going to have to pay more. That means goods are going to cost more. It's going to make them less uh, uh, accessible for, for a number of people. Uh, rents are going to go up, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. In other words, it's, there's, they feel there's more negative than positive to it. Yeah, and, and, and that's certainly something that's been raised. Uh, we haven't really had the experience uh, apart from a, uh, a very uh, short-lived pilot project uh, that took place in Manitoba in the 1970s to really look how, uh, to see how basic income uh, could potentially roll out. What they did find when they, when they went back years later and, and, and did the research on, on how lives were impacted by basic income in, in Dauphin, Manitoba, though, was they found uh, people were uh, not, uh, not quitting their jobs or anything like that. They were actually more willing to get out to work because they felt they had uh, some base supports and they, they weren't uh, judging from crisis to crisis in their life. Um, people were healthier as well. Uh, people had the opportunity to, to ensure they could uh, uh, get uh, medications when they needed it to, to stay healthy. Um, so there seemed to be some positive outcomes to that particular pilot that was uh, done in the 1970s. Uh, we're not sure, you know, the economy has changed quite rapidly since then. Um, but, you know, there's still lots of questions to be asked. And, and I, I think probably it's inevitable that uh, we'll have a basic income, um, but it may, it may not come for a decade or more. Tom Cooper, I'll let you get back into your meeting, Tom. Thanks so much for the time today. Thanks, Bill. Tom Cooper, of course, uh, from the Hamilton Roundtable for Poverty Reduction. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML.